Retirement in this country is broken. We work ourselves to death and miss out on so many of life's experiences along the way. There's got to be a better way. David Adams is a certified financial planner and CPA and founder of David Adams Wealth Group, an independent firm that offers securities through Raymond James Financial Services and is here to help you learn how to retire while you work and develop a different way of thinking when it comes to managing your money. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, David Adams, and this is Retire While You Work. And you can hear us every Sunday on News Radio 1510 WLAC. So thanks for tuning in. And I'm here in studio today with a very special guest, Heather Powell. Of She is the CEO of the Tennessee Kidney Foundation. Hello, Heather. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So she's going she's gonna to speak in our final segment about the importance of kidney health as you age and go into retirement. A very, very important topic. And also we have... Andrea, who's on my team as well, to read some of your questions throughout the week. Hello, Andrea. Hey, David. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Christmas is here, what, two weeks? Yeah, super close. Super close. Not even two weeks. Not e- yeah, wow. Believe me, my kids are counting Thanks. down the seconds. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Green Hills traffic, right? Here we go. Exactly. <laughs> All right, well, well, great. Well, I'm glad you're listening today. And if you have a question throughout the week, you can always go to retirewhileyouwork.com and click Contact Us. And submit your question, and we will answer it on the next show. Now, we recently had Terry Hughes, who's the president and CEO of the Center of Nonprofit Management here in Nashville. And she was on our show to discuss how to choose a great charity and make the right donation for you. But today, I want to talk about charitable giving and how it can impact your finances, not only your finances, but also your life. So the whole retire while you work mindset that we talk about each week can absolutely be enhanced when giving. And having that feeling of being fulfilled, it's very much a correlation between the two. And you don't have to wait, nor should you, until you're retired and you feel like you finally can afford it. Enjoy your life now. That's what this show is about. And enjoy a giving heart now. We all have it in there somewhere. Even the even the Grinch, right? Even the Grinch. That's right. His heart grew three sizes. <laughs> Isn't go. that the story? There you go. But now as the holidays approach, I find myself in a very reflective mood personally and just grateful for all the good fortune that I've had in my life. And I think about some of those simple things that make me instantly happy. And whether that's cheese dip from Taqueria del Sol down the street from my office, which I'll probably be there in a couple hours, or even a run, whether it's a run around, let's say, Radnor Lake, um, you know, and having a chance to serve my community and clients every day, things that bring happiness. Absolutely. Now, sharing my good fortune and making financial contributions to my favorite charities and nonprofits is something that always makes me happy, and I'm sure it probably makes you happy too. And as the fiscal year closes for many of the charitable organizations and also the people who support them, consider these tax-smart ways that you can give by the end of the year, by December 31st. Now, do you have a stock or a bond or any other security that has gone up in value since you bought it? And if so, instead of cash, you can consider giving this appreciated security to charity directly. Now, you have to keep in mind that gifts of this type, they may allow you to avoid capital gains taxes and to receive that charitable deduction based on the fair market value of the gift, not what you paid for it. But you have to donate that appreciated security directly to the charity. And if you sell it yourself first, then you can be on the hook for those capital gains taxes. So get with your advisor to talk through this strategy, but it's a good one. Also, another thing to consider, if you're age 70 and a half or older, you can exclude from your gross income up to $100,000 a year 
in withdrawals from a traditional IRA and what's called a qualified charitable distribution. Now, the money cannot come to you first. You have to make it directly to the charity from your IRA. And while you don't get a charitable deduction for doing this, it tends to be very helpful for those who don't itemize their deductions on their tax return or also for those who uh, don't want to get bumped into a higher tax income tax or higher tax bracket and pay those higher Medicare premiums by taking that required minimum distribution from their IRA. So very good strategy. Again, talk to your advisor or your tax professional about it. And if you're just tuning in, I'm David Adams, and you're listening to Retire While You Work on News Radio 1510 WLAC. And feel free to visit our website at retirewhileyouwork.com and submit your question. Or you can always call us at 615-435-3644 to set an appointment. Now, we're, we were talking about giving. And while I always endorse volunteer work and community service, you have to keep in mind you can't deduct the value of your donated time and services. But if you're using, let's say, your car to provide charitable services, you can deduct a standard mileage rate of about 14 cents a mile, I believe. Um, and this can include things like parking and tolls. But just be sure to maintain some sort of written log of these expenses. But I do want to make sure that this point is well received, that volunteerism is constantly we talked about this on a show a few weeks ago. It's the number one activity of people who consider themselves the happiest retirees. So again, back to retire while you work in that mindset. This is a constant thing that comes up from our listeners and clients in our office as why they're happy in retirement. So if you're looking for, for fulfillment, consider not only donating your money, but also your time. And we can all do that somehow. It's not just about the money. Now, my dad always told me that the most precious commodity in life and the true currency, since we're talking about money, is time. And it's also how you spell love. He would always say, son, you want to know how you spell love? T-I-M-E. And that's something that stuck with me for many, many years. And I think we all can get better at this, including myself. And it's all about balancing. We have a lot of things in life that pull us in different directions. But taking time to give is a very fulfilling thing you can do. Now, if you're an end-of-the-year giver, you can consider uh, including your kids and grandkids in these conversations. Make a list of the charities that align with your family's values and decide in advance how much you can comfortably donate. Now, we're going to take our first break, and we'll continue on this topic and take some of your questions. You've been tuning in to Retire While You Work on News Radio 1510 WLAC. We'll be back in a few. Hello and welcome back to Retire Where You Work. I'm your host, David Adams, on News Radio 1510 WLAC. And just before the break, we were talking about year end giving and including your kids and your grandkids in those conversations and making a list of charities that align with your family's values. So here's something you can do take, take your list of charities and rank them in order of importance. Now, some people like to give, let's say, more than 50% of their total to their top two or three favorite charities. I've seen a lot of clients that take this approach. And then they donate the remainder of their charitable intent into equal amounts to the rest of the groups on their list. So get with your family and come up with the list that uh, excites you and aligns with your values. Now, to deduct a charitable contribution, you must be able to itemize your deductions on that Schedule A of your Form 1040. And, of course, there are limits to how much you can deduct and it's always based on your adjusted gross income. So get with your CPA on this, but make sure that the gifts are to qualified charities and be sure to always keep good records of your gifts. Now, while churches and temples and synagogues, mosques and governments, they automatically get these qualified 
exemptions or status. Other organizations have to apply with the IRS. So you really need to go to a website such as the IRS.gov or to, uh, I think it's guidestar.com, and you can look to make sure that that charity is an exempt organization. Just remember that giving is very rewarding, and it's always a privilege to be able to do so, whether it's money or time, and it can bring a smile to your face. And more importantly, your generosity can really make a real impact and help you enjoy life now, not just when you retire. Now, we're going to go into our questions for the week, and every week we make time for our most compelling questions that we get from you, the listener, either through our website or calling in or from clients, that actual client meetings in our office. And the goal every week is to answer your question in a way that adds true value, not just some cookie-cutter answer. So we hope to do that. And remember, you can submit your question as well by going to retirewhileyouwork.com. Andrea, what's our first question? All right. First question this week actually came from the child of a client, which is always interesting for us. Uh, The question is, I am 29 and I am ready to start really focusing on saving for retirement. I currently have $10,000 in credit card debt and I make $5,000 a month. My monthly expenses are around $3,500 a month with rent and car payment and all that good stuff. What's the quickest way to pay off my debt and start saving too? This is a great question. I always love getting these questions from those in their 20s thinking thinking about this ahead of time. Now, so assuming that there's, I'm, I'm going to assume that the, it's $5,000 net of income. Most people talk in terms of net and not gross. So if we have $5,000 net and $3,500 um, in expenses, at least $1,500 a month toward, you know, towards investing or paying off that $10,000 in credit card debt. Now, a lot of times I would suggest a hybrid approach where we, you know, chip away at the debt, but also start building a retirement account and an investment account. But, you know, here I'd probably look at putting all $1,500 extra each month straight to the debt because we're so close and it's so attainable. It may only take, you know, what, six, seven, eight months to knock out all the credit card debt. And what a blessing to be in a position where there's no debt. And so if it's that close, a lot of times I'll tell a client, just go ahead and knock it out. Um, now, let's say, for example, that this, you know, if there's not an emergency fund, because I want everybody to always have three to six months of expenses in a money market or some sort of uh, savings account. So if you don't have an emergency fund, maybe do $500 a month to start building up those cash reserves and take $1,000 a month and, and knock the, uh, put that towards the credit card debt. You can still have it paid off in 10 months, which would be great. Now, keep, keep always keep in mind, credit card is really bad debt and it can snowball um, very quickly and it gets bigger and bigger. And if you're young and you can knock it out and build that emergency fund, hopefully you never go down that path again. So that's good luck with that. It's a great question. Absolutely. Well, and you, I mean, I know, David, you've seen it time and time again. People get so just crippled by that debt and they feel like they can't get out from under it. Absolutely. And they end up spending, you know, $20 on a pizza at 23 and end up by the time they're 29 having paid you know, five, six hundred dollars for that pizza by the time they pay it oh, off yeah. with the interest and or five thousand dollars of credit card debt, you know, coming out of college, you know, could end up you could be forty years old and that debt could, you know, now is twenty, twenty five thousand dollars. So and if you can get out yeah. of it early, I mean, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's just it can be crippling. So yeah, the the sooner people can get out from under that debt, the better. Yep. So knock out that debt and best of luck. Great question. Excellent. All right. So question number two. This was from a client this week, which, again, we're talking about kids and money for some reason at the beginning of the show today, but that's okay. How early should I encourage my children to start saving for retirement, and what are the best ways for them to do so? 
I started saving when I was in my early 30s, but the world has changed. My kids are both in their early 20s, and when I talk to them about compound interest, they looked at me. They look at me like I have three heads. <laughs> <laughs> Any assistance would be great. Right, again, another great question. And yes, the world has absolutely changed, and really from the days of those pensions. So you remember those dinosaurs? Right. When, when people got pensions and a gold watch from their company right. when they and, retired. And, yeah. You know, I see it with our, you know, a lot of our clients that, you know, maybe worked at a big corporation and they're in their 60s, but it's certainly a dying breed. And so, you know, those days are no more. And the days of, you know, the 401k match, they're still here. But even the, even that's dwindling a little bit unless you're really a big company. So a lot of small companies still aren't offering these type of benefits. Um, you know, and they don't, a lot of businesses, they don't have some type of 401k plan because it's expensive and it's also time consuming to set up. And I run a small business of right now six employees and I set this up a couple years ago and it's a great thing for the employees, but it, it's, it's a lot of administration. Um, but the bottom line here is most of the millennials, to the point of this question, are on their own. And so you, I'd say talk to them now. There's no better time than now. I had a client this week that actually asked me to meet with her teenagers and to have some of the moms at the school bring all their kids together so that they could talk about how important this is. And, you know, Dave Ramsey, I know, has great programs on this subject. And it's something that I'm even looking into Um as far as teaching, not just teenagers, but also the generation in their 20s and you know 20s and early 30s, because it's so important. So I would always say now it's now. a great time because you're on time. you're on your own. You're on right. your own. Companies aren't taking care of you anymore. That's I think that that's great advice. And you can't you can't necessarily rely on Social Security, but I won't even get started on that. I'm no. sure we'll have a question about that at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we will every week. Absolutely. All right, well, if you're just now tuning in, you're listening to Retire While You Work. I'm your host, David Adams, on News Radio 1510 WLAC, and we're answering some of your questions throughout the week. And you can submit yours at retirewhileyouwork.com and click the contact button in the top right hand corner. We'd be glad to answer your question. All right, do we have another question? We do. We have a question from a listener this week who emailed and said, My wife mentioned hearing about the catch up clause on CNBC. How does it work for people closer to retirement, and what are the benefits? All right, the catch-up clause. Well, there is something um, called the catch-up clause or the catch-up contribution um, when it comes to your IRAs and 401ks, and it really just allows you to contribute a little bit more money if you're over the age of 50 with the hope that you know maybe that you know you have less time, and this is a way to to get you back on track. So the way that works, you know, if you're under the age of 50. You're able to put, I believe it's $5,500 this year and go in the same thing in 2017 into a Roth or a traditional IRA. But if you're over the age of 50, you can do an extra $1,000. So not a huge amount, but every bit, every dollar makes a difference. And on the 401k for 2017, it's going to be, the limit's going to be $18,000 a year again. But if you're over the age of 50, you can actually put another $6,000 as that catch-up contribution. So $24,000. Now, what the benefits would be would just be, you know, being able to save more money tax efficiently into that bucket three. I always talk about three buckets of money on the show. First bucket being your emergency fund. Second bucket being kind of that middle bucket, which is paying down the house early, saving for the kids college, saving for uh, maybe uh, adding on to your house, just all these kind of midterm goals. And of course, bucket three is retirement. And that's going to be your 401ks and your IRAs. It's money that you can't touch to your 59 and a half. It's longer term, but there can be nice tax advantages. And I'd say it's it's a no-brainer if you're able to contribute money and max out money in a 401k because it's the only way, especially if you're a high income earner, 
to get a dollar-for-dollar tax deduction? So very good question. I would make sure I see a lot of clients that don't realize that they can put that extra $6,000 in, and all you have to do is call your 401k company and step up your contribution limit. Well, I think that's fantastic. And you know, I didn't know about this actually until today. So I this has been an education for me, but I think about people who really came to the retirement game late, right? They started late. This is a great chance for them to be able to catch up. Well, yeah, and back to we were talking about the lack of pensions and a lot of companies aren't even doing the 401k match. It's really it's really on you these days to do that. So Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it's I, I just I didn't realize that this was even available. So I think this is great information, especially for those that are really struggling to catch up. Right. And you can do, you know, I mentioned the IRA and the Roth. Something to note is the 401k is your company plan. So you're able to max out that 401k at $18,000 and again, over 6000 if you're over 50. But also you can do a traditional or a Roth because that's considered a personal contribution. So you can do 401k at work and a Roth or a traditional IRA. And whether you do a Roth or a traditional IRA really just depends on your income levels um, and things like that. So definitely uh, look at maxing out both of those, a tax deduction. Uh, it's it's the only way to get that dollar-for-dollar dollar tax deduction. And on the Roth IRA, you can actually put in after-tax money, so you're not getting that benefit now, but it's going to grow tax-free for many, many years. So a good a good way to have a balanced tax approach And we're going to go ahead and take our next break and answer a couple more of your questions. Thanks for listening. You've been tuning in to Retire While You Work on News Radio 1510 WLAC, and I'm your host, David Adams. And again, when we come back, we're going to take a couple more of your most compelling questions of the week. And then we have our exciting special guest for our fourth segment. You will not want to miss that. Back in a few. Welcome back to Retire While You Work. I'm your host, David Adams, on News Radio 1510 WLAC. You can catch us every Sunday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. And right before the break, we were answering some of our listeners' questions and actual questions from meetings in our office from the past week. And you can go and submit your question to retirewhileyouwork.com and click Contact Us, and we'll do our best to answer it. All right, Andrea, what is our next question? Okay, this question actually came from me because I know you've been no, asked. You can't, you can't do that. Yes, I can. <laughs> okay. Sure, I can. All right, let's This hear is it. a question you get asked in your office every single day, and I have personally heard it so many times. Let me guess, Social Security? I, yes, of course it's about Social Security. Um, so I actually made it one of our questions this week. Um, Great. So here we go. Are Social Security benefits taxed? If so, for whom? At what rate? And how do we prepare for yet another expense in retirement? All right. Yes. Very, very seasoned at answering this question. It's a good one. And there's a lot of confusion around Social Security in general, but certainly around how it's taxed and when to take benefits and that sort of thing. First, let me give the disclaimer. While I am a CPA, I do not do taxes anymore, but I try to keep enough knowledge to stay, to be dangerous. Right. Just enough to I certainly do my continuing education, by the way. I have have 40 hours I have to do before the end of the year, and I was doing 20 of those last night. I don't, this is not a sympathy call, but- that's it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. It is feels, a lot of work. Do you feel sorry for me? <laughs> no, because it just makes you smarter and it makes you better at your job. Well, let me first see if I can answer this question. Let's see. Then you can be the gauge of that. All right. Well, I think that people get confused um, when it comes to the taxation of Social Security benefits versus the reduction of benefits. And here's what I mean by that. Now, if you take Social Security early, 
So under the age of, for most people, 66, maybe 67, depending on your age. And if you make, so if you take it early, if you make over a certain amount of earned income, you actually, you actually get a reduction in benefits. So you get a penalty. They give you, if you're supposed to get $1,500 a month and you make over this stress threshold, let's say it's 50000 every dollar you make over a certain amount, they'll reduce that benefit. So this is not a good thing. And always talk to your financial advisor and your CPA first. This is a very big mistake that I've seen a lot of people make where they just want the money now, whether they think it's going away or they're just ready for it, which I understand you got to look at your other earned income. You do not want a reduction in benefits. Now, something to think about along that topic, once you hit that full retirement age, it doesn't matter how much money you make in any type of other job. You can make as much money as you would like, and the benefits aren't penalized, meaning you get the set amount on your Social Security statement. So just something to be aware of if you take it early. But back to the question about taxation. I just wanted to clear that up about the reduction in benefits. So typically, you're either going to pay zero, 50%, and nobody ever pays more than 85% um, of, of their Social Security benefits. Now, here's what I mean. That doesn't mean an 85% tax rate. I got a lot of people, I mean, their eyes get huge. 85%. Yeah. That, that, that actually sounds kind of scary. Yes. So, please explain. Yes. let me. It's not near as bad as it sounds. That means you pay taxes on 85% of the benefits. So, and that's, again, if you make over a certain amount. So, if your Social Security, for a lot of people, if they've worked their entire life, $30,000 is an average amount. If you're if, if thirty thousand dollars a year, eighty five percent of that thirty thousand dollars would be taxed, but at your ordinary income tax bracket. So somebody gets thirty thousand, maybe twenty five thousand or so of that will be taxed just as if you were working at your same income tax rate. Got it. And if you're making a smaller amount of other if you don't have another job, you don't have other earned income, and maybe that none of the social security is taxed or maybe fifty percent. So got it. It's taxed not as much as other income, but it's still taxed. So I'd say don't worry about the taxation part of Social Security. You know, it is what it is. You're going to pay taxes. If you have another job, you're just going to pay it. Not much you can do about it. But absolutely worry about when to take it. And I could talk this entire segment about when you should take Social Security. And I'll just say this. About 60% of people end up taking it early at 62. And, you know, you get about a 6 or 7% raise every year that you wait. And you can, you can wait as long as age 70. So in a lot of ways, you're better off to forego those benefits until you really need them. Or if you have other places, let's say you have a, um, you know, money in the bank earning nothing, you'd be better off to live on that for a little bit and let your Social Security compound it or go up in value by 6 or 7% a year. Uh, a lot of times it's fear. They're fearful of, hey, it's going away. And I can tell you, I tell clients all the time, Social Security is not going away. Back to what we talked about with pensions being gone. So many people rely on it. So great question. And uh, I'm sure we'll get that question again next week. Absolutely. So let let me make sure I understand. This okay. is for me personally. That's right. So, this is your question. Yes. So <laughs> let's say somebody is making 50 grand a year okay. at 65, okay. but they want to take their Social Security or they're getting $30,000 a year in Social Security okay. or whatever. Yeah. So- $20,000 of that would be taxed along with the $50,000 they have in Yes, salary. in theory, correct. Because you're okay. saying the 50000 that you're making from your job, that's going to be taxed at the regular ordinary income tax rate. Yes. And then whatever. So if, you, if you're going to have to pay taxes on 50 or 85% of your Social Security, 20000 of that 30, for example, would be added to that 50000 from your job, and you would pay taxes on that 70000 So it. part of the Social Security would be excluded and would be income tax-free if there's such a thing. 
<laughs> income tax free. Uh, that that sounds really yeah. nice, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Not not sure it's a thing, but okay. We pay it somewhere. Trust me. Absolutely. All right. So on to our next question. All right. And if you're, and I'll just say, if you're just now tuning in, you're listening to Retire While You Work, and we'd love to hear your question. We get a lot of them in our office through actual client meetings, but we love getting questions from our listeners. So go to retirewhileyouwork.com and send us your question, and we will answer it on our next show. All right. So this one actually came in from a listener, and I think it's a really interesting question, and it's definitely something that is happening more and more. Um, so here's the question. My wife and I chose not to have children. We have many loving family members and friends and a very full life together. But now as we age, we're concerned about who is going to look after us when the time comes to make medical and end-of-life decisions. What is your advice for how we can best plan for retirement? All right. Great question. Well, let me say this. And this is – there's a lot of – I have a lot of things to say on this topic. But if you don't have children – it is very important that you create some sort of alternative system to ensure that your health and your well-being are protected, especially in your declining years. And so here are some steps that I go over with clients and meetings on a weekly basis. Um, let's say the, the first one I'd come up with would be to appoint a medical proxy. Now, this will be a person that has a, basically has a power of attorney to make decisions about, about your health care when a doctor deems that you're incapacitated. So choose very wisely here. A spouse or a domestic partner is usually a very good choice. And it's always good to have a backup proxy in in case you outlive the primary one. So if you don't have kids, consider maybe a trusted relative or even a friend for this role. So very important, a medical proxy or power of attorney. Next, I'd say make a living will. And we had a a estate planning attorney on here a few shows ago, uh, Jeff Mobley here in town, and he went over some, some of these things. So um, again, this this should be part of your financial plan. Talk to your financial planner and your estate attorney, but make a living will. Now, this is a document that goes through the medical care that you're going to want in certain situations. It's mostly related to end-of-life treatment. You know, do you want to be kept on life support? That's the big part of a living will or placed on a feeding tube. And this is where you let your wishes be known to those that are going to be by your side during this stage of life. Another thing would be just a, a power of attorney document. And this is where you choose a person that's going to have the authority to manage your finances when you're incapacitated. So we have a lot of clients um, where we have POA, power of attorney accounts, where we work with the power of attorney on behalf of that client who is now incapacitated. Very, very important to go ahead and have this earmarked as part of your part of your financial plan. And this should obviously be someone that you trust completely and someone who has your best interests at heart. And, you know, sometimes there are people that can't think of anyone in their life who fits that bill. It's a very emotional decision, very tough decision. But you can set up a revocable trust and appoint your bank even as your trustee. Now, I don't typically like that approach. I'd rather it be somebody, um, a family member or a trusted advisor, but a bank or a corporate trustee is always an option. And they would handle everything from, let's say, paying the bills to filing insurance claims on your behalf to even maintaining or selling your home when you're unable to handle these tasks. And I would jump from the living will and the power of attorney now to just making an actual will. So a basic will. This is very important for people without an immediate family. And this is how you detail your wishes on how you're going to distribute your property, things like your burial arrangements, and even guardianship of any pets. And that's a real thing. I'll tell you, um, I've seen a lot of clients, and I did this myself, they'll put their pet in their will and maybe say, you know, for the person that is going to the caretaker of my pet, here's an account with $10,000 or, gosh, if your dog's eating a raw diet or 
organic diet and getting all sorts of doggy massages. There's all sorts of things these days. Maybe <laughs> it's fifty thousand dollars. I don't Absolutely. know. Your pampered pet. They well, <laughs> there was a lady in Texas who left her cat like six million dollars. Her um, cat. Hmm. Six million dollars. Yeah, so that's I've it. never I've never managed an investment account for an animal that hasn't come up yet, but I am seeing that becoming part of the will. Very interesting. Also, you should fund long-term care. Um, you know, the assisted living centers, the, the prices are astronomical. I've seen, you know, they're typically 50, 75, even $100,000 a year and that goes up with the more care that you need. Um, and adult daycare actually averages around here at least around almost $70 a day. And, you know, you're going to have to pay from this, you know, from your retirement nest egg, and it's the biggest drain in retirement. But there are ways that you can get some type of long-term care insurance, and there's other products like that, even though it's going up cost-wise over and over. And lastly, I'd say find a community. Look for a great place to live where you can stay engaged and have friends around you. Very, very important. And with that, we're going to go to break. You've been listening to Retire While You Work on News Radio 1510 WLAC. I'm your host, David Adams. And when we come back, we have a special guest from the Kidney Foundation to talk about kidney health as you age and throughout retirement. You will not want to miss this. We'll be back in a few. Hello and welcome back to Retire While You Work. I'm your host, David Adams. And before the break, we were answering some of our listeners, and your top questions of the week. And remember that you can go to retirewhileyouwork.com and send us your question. We'd love to answer it next week. Now, as we come up on our last segment here, every week in this segment, we try to bring on a guest who we think and hope can better help you to get into that retire-while-you-work mindset and just take a little bit off your plate so that you can enjoy life more and make the most of your time. It's all about fulfillment. And today, we have a special guest, Heather Powell, who is the CEO of the Tennessee Kidney Foundation. Hello, Heather. Hello. Thank you for being here. And we're going to talk with her today about why kidney health is so important as we age. Very important to stay healthy, to be able to enjoy retirement. So welcome again. Now, this may sound like a silly question, but what do our kidneys do? Well, kidneys are a pretty important part of your body. They actually filter waste and help to um, filter other kinds of toxic things in your body so that you can stay healthy. And when your kidneys don't function, you can imagine that waste and those other things that normally would get filtered out build up inside of you, and that contributes to a pretty unhealthy way of life. So toxic things like alcohol, for example? Well, the liver is mostly responsible for that one, but the kidneys, you know, if, 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 right, everything's affected. Well, great. So, you know, why, why do people suffer from so many kidney, kidney issues? This seems like just a thing that keeps increasing in the country. And, and, you know, is there a certain age where we typically see this? It's a big problem, especially in states like Tennessee, where the, the general health of the population is not so great. We have a lot of people who suffer from type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and those are really the two leading causes of kidney disease. So the general health has an impact on the number of people who suffer from things like kidney disease, and it's largely preventable. So if we can catch people earlier in life, help people change you know, the way they eat and the way they exercise and things like that, we can actually help to stop the progression of something like kidney disease. Um, but as it stands now, people over the age of 60 are more prone to having kidney disease. So okay. um, a lot of patients who are actually in kidney failure or, you know, are elderly um, residents of Tennessee and um, need a lot of, you know, extra medical care and have a lot of extra medical costs associated with that. Gotcha. Well, thanks for that. So, you know, kidneys obviously serve an important function in our bodies. Why do you think it is that kidney health is, is often so ignored? 
I think a lot of people who have kidney disease have other health issues, um, comorbidities, things like the type 2 diabetes or hypertension. So they're not as focused on kind of the next consequence. If they don't manage that diabetes or they don't manage their hypertension or high blood pressure, they're not really thinking ahead to what can result from that. Um, we like to call well, we don't like to, but we call kidneys the second-rate organ. But we're really trying at the Tennessee Kidney Foundation to change that conversation about kidneys and really bring them to the forefront because they affect so many other things. Um, it's it's really a costly disease to have um, when you have kidney disease. So if we can do education and, and um, some prevention programming to keep people from getting to that point, then we'll be doing you know a big service for people in the state. So what type of, you mentioned some education on these topics. Are those things that you'll do at your organization? We do. Uh, one of the things we do is provide free screenings. Um, we do those at churches, civic organizations, ch- uh, health fairs. We can even do those in company workplaces. It costs about $4 for us to screen each person, oh, wow. but um, and it takes about 15 to 20 minutes. So it's not a big cost investment and it's not a big time investment, but a person can actually walk away from that 15 or 20 minute screening knowing that they're either at high risk for kidney disease or that they they may already know that they have you know kidney disease in whatever stage it may be. Um, so we partner with other um, dialysis providers and, and medical uh, partners in the kidney community to uh, volunteer their time as nurses and doctors to come and consult with people and help us to administer those screenings so that we can hopefully catch more people. So what's involved in those screenings if you're if you're going to take this 15 minute screening is it just is it asking questions about kind of your your history or is it an actual medical procedure? It's both. And it's not scary. A lot of people walk up to our, our booth or our table at a health fair and say, I don't know if I want to do this. This sounds like it's, you know, it's a little scary, but it's really pretty simple. Um, we do an intake form and we ask a lot of questions about family history of various types of kidney disease. We'll ask about your personal history of hypertension, of diabetes, of kidney stones, and some other things that might indicate that you have a higher risk. Um, we even talk a little bit about ethnic background. Um, African Americans are about three times more likely to have kidney disease than than other populations. Okay. Um, so there are a lot of indicators that can kind of throw up a red flag to say, if you don't have kidney disease now, you really need to watch, you know, these these certain things to try to prevent um, having that happen later in life. Um, so we ask those kind of background questions and then we do a simple BMI test. So height and weight, okay. we take your blood pressure and then we actually do a urinalysis right there on the spot. So that's all it takes. And all of these things will, the, the output would be, hey, you're high risk and here are things you need to do, and you have maybe a, is there like a workshop, or is it a list of things you need to do to be aware or, or to go meet with your primary care physician? Right. At the end of the test, you would meet with either a nurse practitioner or a physician who can walk through, you know, just kind of a, all the indicators of kidney disease and, and helping you kind of understand what the results are. And then we've got lots of resources about how to get connected with medical providers if you don't have one. Um, and also resources like a kidney-friendly diet handout where you can learn how to change some um, eating choices and exercise choices to, to stop the progression if you have kidney disease or to prevent the onset of kidney disease, um, but really just resources in, in a way to connect people with what they need. Well, and what a great, I mean, at the end of the day, what a great cost savings to these employers, right? I mean, if if people are out and, and if they end up on dialysis or something like that, right, where they're gone three right. days a week from their office place. Dialysis is a very time-intensive um, type of treatment to undergo. And once you have kidney failure, there's really only the option of dialysis or kidney transplant. And folks who are on dialysis typically do um, what they call hemodialysis, and it's done in a dialysis clinic. And it's three visits a week, and it's four or five hours each visit sitting in a chair receiving dialysis. So 
Um, we've met lots of people through the Tennessee Kidney Foundation who actually are able to maintain um, working a full-time job. But just because of the, the time that you spend in that chair, a lot of people are not able to continue to work full-time. Um, so the, the cost savings of catching people early on, um, not just to the employer, but, you know, just the other kind of consequences that you think about when you've got to start, you know, taking disability or, um, you know, going on Medicare and things like that when you can't afford to work any longer uh, because of your health. Those are tremendous cost savings to everyone. Yeah, and that was actually my next question, kind of taking it to the to the financial impact, is what are the expenses associated with kidney disease as we get older? And so it sounds like a lot of it could just be lost income, but also your time, and then if you're an employer, the time of time away from work for your employees. Right, and the cost of dialysis to an individual person ranges between seventy and a hundred thousand dollars a year, and a large part of that is covered by insurance, whether it's private insurance or Medicare, Medicaid, um, but it is a tremendous expense. Um, the other side of that is is transplant, and while transplant is more expensive on the front end, it's around $250,000, I think, in the first year wow. for transplant. But if you think about someone who could end up on dialysis for 30 years, if they have a transplant, you know, the cost savings is greater in the beginning, but over time, it's, you know, it's more of a, a benefit. How... how- how long of a waiting list is there typically when somebody needs a transplant? Is that is that you know what's that look like? It's pretty long, um, and kidney transplants are a little different than other organ transplants because the severity of your need for a transplant doesn't necessarily move you up on the list like it would with a heart or with a lung or with another type mm-hmm. of organ, uh, and that's because you can actually receive a living kidney donation. Um, and the other part of that is that um, kidney donation or kidney transplant is actually considered a form of treatment rather than a life saving. Um, type of transplant. So the like the crazy statistic to me is that 90% of people who need an organ need a kidney. And that's all over oh, the, wow. across the United States. In, in Tennessee, it's about 2,600 people out of 3,000 who need an organ need a kidney. So it is by far, in a way, the most needed organ to have transplanted. And, and back to the beginning of, of our conversation, it's, it's often something that's not focused on and people overlook. That's, that's, that's amazing. Right. We talk about heart disease and all those things, and then kidneys are kind of at the background. Right, exactly. So, so we definitely want to change the kind of the way that we think about kidneys and the way we talk about kidneys. Absolutely. Well, very important, very important. Now, what are three things that people need to do today to keep their kidneys healthy or just improve their overall kidney health? I know you talked about weight, things you can eat or changing your diet, exercise, but what would be three things you would tell our listeners? Definitely, you know, Think about your family history. If, if your mother or your grandmother or someone in your family was on dialysis or had kidney disease, just keep that in mind. Just know that you might be more at risk if you have a family history of kidney disease. And a lot of people don't realize that because you're on dialysis, that means you have kidney disease. It's just that's all part of changing that conversation about how people think about kidneys. So sometimes we'll, we'll meet someone and say, you know, does anyone in your family have kidney disease? And they'll say, well, no, but, you know, my dad was on dialysis for 10 years. So just, you know, increasing the education about kidneys and about the treatment for kidney disease would be a big thing. If you have other issues like type 2 diabetes or hypertension and you're on medication, take the medication. Just make sure that you manage those other comorbidities because not doing those things can help, you know, lead you down the path to kidney disease quicker. Um, And I think the other thing would just be, like you said, general health, just trying to eat well, make good choices, you know, swapping out. You know, if you've got to eat fast food, make the best choice you can while you're there and um, try to limit salt intake and um, just generally um, trying to make the best choices you can. 
And then what about, you mentioned exercise. There's certain types of exercise or is it just exercise in general? Just exercise in general is good. You know, moderate exercise is, is better than no exercise at all. So just looking at that, that whole picture of your general health is very important. Great. Okay. Now I know that one of the missions of your group is really to encourage donation. And so why should someone donate and how difficult is it today, let's say, versus maybe 25 years ago? Well, like we talked about before, the numbers are pretty staggering. 90% of people who need an organ need a kidney. So the need now is greater than it's ever been before. Um, and the actual the number of kidneys transplanted each year doesn't necessarily increase year to year. Um, I think the demand is higher um, because the number of people who have kidney disease increases by about 5 to 10% each year. So the, the waiting list doesn't go down and the number of donors hasn't gone up typically from year to year. So um, it's easier now to make the donation just in terms of, I think people have better access to information about what it takes to become, a, especially a living kidney donor. Right. Um, and people also have better access to, you know, making that commitment to be an organ donor after death. And not the most exciting topic to talk about, but it's one of those things where about 80% of people say they would like to be an organ donor after death and only about 15 or 20% of people actually oh, wow. sign that card. Okay. So that's a big thing. Just real simple. Sign the back of your driver's license, register to be an organ donor. I think iPhones have a, a health app that lets you indicate, you know, right there in the app if you would like to be an organ donor. So some pretty simple things people can do that kind of help remove those barriers that you might have had 25 years ago. Oh, great. Well, it is the giving season. So what are some ways that people can give to the Tennessee Kidney Foundation? We've got a few easy things people can do that tie into our mission. One of those is um, support for transportation because, you know, as we've talked about before, dialysis requires three trips a week to a dialysis center. A lot of folks are elderly. Um, a lot of people are, are not ambulatory and need extra help getting to dialysis. And one of the things that we do is provide that type of transportation assistance, whether it's tickets for paratransit services or, or cab fare or, you know, buses for elderly folks for coming from another county, maybe into this county, um, into Nashville. Um, $50 a month will get someone to and from dialysis for the entire month. Oh, wow. So um, that's, a, that's a good number to throw out. Um, $100 will screen 25 people. Um, that covers the cost of all the supplies the, that we would need to, um, to screen those folks. And if you want to look at a bigger picture number, about $500 helps cover the cost for transplant patients to get their medications. Well, that's great. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of way our listeners can, can help with this organization. And how can they find you if they're interested in donating? We are everywhere online. Um, we're at TennesseeKidneyFoundation.org, and we're on social media platforms at TNKidney. TN Kidney. Thank you so much, Heather. Great to have you here. Very interesting information. And with that, we're going to go ahead and close today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in with us today, as always. And if you need to reach me during the week, you can give us a call at 615-435-3644 to set a consultation or visit retirewhileyouwork.com and submit your question. Or come by and see our team at our office and our, in the historic 12 South neighborhood. We'd love to see you. I'm David Adams. Remember that life is short and there are many more important things to worry about than money. And I hope this show helps. Talk to you next week.